Hello and welcome to Immigrantly. I'm your host Sadia Khan. If you have been listening to our podcast for a long time, you must have noticed that we at Immigrantly admire and appreciate the work done by Al Jazeera. We love talking to guests who are somehow associated with the platform. We've spoken to Yara Elmjoy who covers all things food for Al Jazeera Plus. We've also spoken to Sana Said who is a journalist and both those conversations were amazing. Incredible conversations which by the way you guys should absolutely check out. This time we are shifting to the political ground level aspect of their work. Today's guest is Leila Al Aryan, who is the executive director of Al Jazeera Fault Lines, a Peabody and Emmy Award-winning documentary series that covers the U.S. and its role around the world. You can find it on Al Jazeera English. But before that, just a quick reminder: we have a Patreon account, and we need your support to sustain our podcast. Any amount is fine. anything as low as $3 a month yes guys $3 a month will help us sustain our podcast if you're listening to this episode do check it out we have links to patreon on our instagram on our website consider helping us it's an indie podcast and every penny counts and now to our today's guest lela aryan Um, the older son was in the ICU in a Turkish hospital, and they were supposed to have come to the U.S. to be resettled as refugees. But when the Muslim ban hit, they kind of missed the window between when they could travel and when um, the older son got so sick that he ended up in the in the ICU in a in a hospital mm-hmm. in Istanbul. Um, so we, you know, traveled to Istanbul. We interviewed him and kind of just followed their story as it unfolded as he was trying to beg the UN to help him. Lela, thank you so much for coming on my show. I am so excited. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. So we'll start with something that happened recently, and I was actually dying to get your perspective on it. I was, in fact, introduced to your work through your Twitter thread that you did on this particular topic. So I'll start with the controversy surrounding New York Times podcast Caliphate. Um, for our listeners who aren't familiar with it, Caliphate is a podcast that is hosted by Rukmini Kalimaki, who is um, ostensibly an expert on terrorism at the New York Times. The podcast basically chronicles interviews with ISIS operatives, and it was aimed at understanding the ISIS mindset, which honestly I don't think. is even possible the podcast won the peabody award in 2018 however recently we found out that podcast's primary source shairoz choudhry aka abu husafa lied about being an isis executioner and was charged by the canadian police on counts of terrorism hoax and his alleged accounts of fake executions including some gory details were all fabricated Now to be fair to Kalamaki she did talk about the narrative having limitations of 
you know, fact-checking. She wasn't 100% sure about Abu Husefa's story, confessing that she had been frustrated with her interviewees. However, unfortunately, this did not stop Kalamaki from sharing unverified accounts on subsequent episodes. And this is how I see it. As the series gained popularity, she set aside her journalistic qualms for personal gain and was more than happy to reinforce this caricature-like depiction of Muslims as evil and savage. Now, I listened to one or two episodes of Caliphate, and I realized that like many other narratives around Muslims, it's one-dimensional, it's reductive, and I stopped listening to it. As a journalist, you've covered a number of stories that are intense and that require a lot more nuance that we would like to imagine. What does this whole episode tell you about how journalists are approaching narratives about Muslims in America? Well, I think I'd like to first start maybe specifically about Caliphate. I think the main issue is that she actually approaches Abu Huzaifa for the most part with minimal skepticism, especially hmm. in the heart of the of the series. It's 10 episodes. The first five episodes of the series basically recounted his story and kind of gave it a legitimacy because she was minimally skeptical. She uh, let him speak. As you mentioned, he talked about gory details of committing two murders um, she says at the very beginning, um, I've interviewed a lot of ISIS members. Most of them would talk about things they witnessed. Uh, they were never willing to talk about crimes they committed. So it was obvious that she set out to really look for a story and a character of someone who can confess to gory murders. So when the scandal broke that Abu Huzaifa, who we now know is named Shiroz Chaudhry, I believe he's a 25-year-old Pakistani-Canadian man who was arrested um, and charged by the Canadian authorities of perpetrating a hoax, a terrorism hoax that resulted in fear in Canada. Rukmini Kalamaki in the New York Times initially tried to say that they built a narrative tension within the podcast, that they actually tried to raise questions about his credibility from the very beginning. Hmm. Unfortunately, I would say that's not true. For the first five episodes, we basically hear his story kind of presented to us as fact, where he's from, uh, what he likes, the fact that he's into Star Wars. He could be your next door neighbor who's Muslim and into Star Wars, but mm. also joining ISIS, mm. which I would argue is a problematic assumption to begin with. Exactly. And then I think what really seems to have propelled this journey by Kalamaki is the fact that she expresses frustration that she's never been able to really interview ISIS members or ISIS fighters who've actually directly committed crimes. Mm. Uh, she's frustrated that... The people she's interviewed in the past have all talked about witnessing horrific things, but never committing them themselves. And in Abu Huzaifa, she found someone kind of willing to confess gory uh, crimes of, of two murders in kind of disturbing detail. And I think she found that to be tantalizing and disturbing, but also kind of um, sensationalistic listening. Hmm. Um, and when they finally do express some sort of questions about whether he's reliable or not, it really has to do with the timeline. When did he join ISIS? When did he go to Syria? Not the bulk of his story, which if the Canadian authorities are right, uh, was a hoax. that He was basically catfishing them. He was lying to them about who he is. Um, we don't know his motivations, but I also wonder what the role of the journalist is when somebody dupes you like that. 
Are you kind of not skeptical enough from the beginning? It's obviously every journalist's worst nightmare for this to happen to them. But I do think there were a lot of red flags that should have been caught that weren't. And I think part of the reason this happened is because we all have biases. I think in the case of many Western journalists, these biases related to the Muslim world kind of confirm our own worst fears. And I think in this case, uh, the story, if it was, you know, as they say, if it's too good to be true, it usually is. And I think, unfortunately, there was not enough skepticism and not enough fact-checking. And I think this could have been preventable. So, Leila, you've talked about a lot of things, and I want to unpack them. First, you said she wasn't as skeptical, which makes sense. You're absolutely right. She wasn't. Why do you think that is the case? Is it due to the nature of coverage? Because it's about ISIS, right? And it is almost impossible to get accurate um, accounts of what is happening or what was happening in Syria at the time. Is that one of the reasons? And when you talk about journalists not being neutral in a way, especially when it comes to narratives around Muslims, do you think it's even possible to be neutral in reporting on political or religious issues? Or is neutrality irrelevant in times like this? I do think that there are kind of larger issues with Kalamaki's reporting around ISIS for one, I think there's an overemphasis on the role of religion and religious mm. justification by the group that kind of overplays religious beliefs and I believe underplays the geopolitical situation in the region. Right. Um, this group was born in Iraq, uh, a country mm. that was invaded by the United States in 2003, occupied for many years. Its entire infrastructure was destroyed. The entire mm. region as a result was destabilized estimates of over 1 million Iraqi civilians were killed. What does that do to, to a society that's destroyed and decimated by foreign occupation in this way, mm. that's seen decades and decades, you know, at this point of horrific violence? Um, I feel that she kind of talks about ISIS as if it was a group that was created in Mars and then just happened to you know, drop into Earth. You know, if you look at the number of foreign fighters who joined ISIS, even if you use her figures, 40,000 ISIS members mm. who went to Iraq and Syria. If you look at it in proportion to the global Muslim population of 1.8 billion Muslims, that's right. 0.0002%. That's a you know, st statistically insignificant number. And yet mm. I feel that the coverage, like I mentioned, overemphasized the role of religion and, and religious justification, which was largely completely rejected by the world's Muslims, you know, from top scholars to everyday Muslims. And I believe that entire framing, which kind of decontextualizes the war in Iraq, later the civil war in Syria, kind of all of the, the very real and devastating circumstances around which this group was created, um, really doesn't give readers and listeners and, and viewers a full picture of why it was created, how it was created and, and justified and all of that. Of course, ISIS is a horrific group. Like, I think part of the problem is mm. that, you know, anybody who raises questions around this coverage, especially if you're a Muslim journalist, potentially faces accusations that you yourself may be sympathetic to ISIS, which of course is absurd. Mm -hmm. Or that, you know, you're not acknowledging how horrific and gruesome ISIS is. Obviously, nobody can deny that. I think it's just about whether this kind of coverage was sensationalized in a way that I think did 
people a massive disservice as far as understanding the full picture. I think news coverage that's based on stereotypes, that's sensationalized, that essentializes Arabs and Muslims is easier to sell to a public um, in the sense that, I, mm. as I mentioned before, it kind of confirms our very worst fears and our very worst biases, you know, much like a Michael Bay, you know, Hollywood movie um, with the fireworks and mm. kind of the <laughs> sensationalism versus more nuanced, you know, shades of gray type of coverage. I want to delve into this a little more. A huge critique of journalism is that it can sensationalize issues, as you rightfully pointed out. But perhaps this is because people respond to sensationalized content, which creates a bigger profit for the news agencies, right? That's what's really happening. So how much of journalism, other than journalism about Muslim narratives, is inadvertently driven by profit and what it sells. I do think there is a lot of pressure on journalists to create content and, you know, to report on issues that people actually click on, watch, mm. listen to, read. I think there's so much content these days and there's so much pressure on uh, news organizations and, and companies to turn a profit, unfortunately, given uh, the business model now, especially in the United States. That is a consideration. I think in Caliphate, the New York Times saw a podcast that had a lot of potential mm. to make money. And in the end, it was downloaded 40 million times. It wow. was hugely popular. It won many awards. Mm. Um, but it also had real-life consequences. In Canada, it effectively shut down the debate over repatriation. So you had mm. um, members of ISIS or their relatives uh, stuck in refugee camps who were trying to be brought back to Canada, including a five-year-old orphan named Amira. And once the podcast came out and there was a huge backlash, why would you let this man, Abu Huzaifa, walk around free in Canada when he joined ISIS mm. and killed these two people? You know, I think there just wasn't political appetite to, to bring those people back to Canada and either put them on trial or figure out what to do with them. Uh, recently, the Canadian government, I think especially after it came out that Chaudhry uh, may have been uh, lying about all of this, brought back mm. this five-year-old girl, Amira, uh, orphan, or, or decided they would bring her back. I'm not sure if she's actually back yet. but mm. So that's a good development. But all, all this to say that this type of work does have real-life impact, and it's really important that we get it right. So you mentioned something that I want to go back to, Caliphate One Peabody Award. That's huge. What does that tell us about the significance of these types of awards? Are we placing too much emphasis or importance onto them? And do you think sometimes we tend to overhype certain work because it comes from places with a lot of clout, like the New York Times? It's hard to say. I mean, I think obviously the Peabody judges had no idea that potentially Abu Huzaifa's story wasn't true. I'm not sure what they're going to decide as far as the award. I think probably a lot mm. of people are waiting on the internal New York Times investigation uh, and what that concludes about whether or not his account is true and what the team could have done to kind of fact check it. I did want to go back to kind of some of the red flags I mentioned earlier. Um, mm. In the same episode, episode six of the podcast, when they kind of start to sort of question some of the details around him. Um, they hired a stringer, uh, or it may have been their colleague in Pakistan, who tracked down uh, Abu Huzaifa's father, who told them, no, my son never went to Syria. 
Now, it is mm. possible that a parent would want to cover for their kid and sort of, you know, protect them. Yeah. But I think for me, that would have made me scratch my head and say, let's try to track down other family members and see what they say. Because it definitely would have given me some pause because he either went or didn't. And there should have been a lot of witnesses mm. to determine where he was at the time that he says he was in Syria. So um, that's a red flag. I think the fact that Kalamaki at the very beginning says herself that she got this a video where she found out about it through this organization called Memory, which was founded by former Israeli uh, military people. Um, but mm. it's also faced a lot of accusations of mistranslating content, cherry picking sort of the most incendiary sources from the Middle East and the Arab world to kind of portray the region in an overly negative fashion. Um, mm. And, I, you know, I just think Memory has been accused a lot in the past of kind of mistranslation, making mistakes so I, I think as journalists, we should also be very cognizant of the sources we use and rely on. Leila, you have talked about red flags. Um, and as a journalist, you've been able to identify those red flags just by listening to Caliphate and also reading about it. Why do you think Kalamaki wasn't able to do that? That's one. And do you think she is an expert on terrorism? And how do you define an expert on anything, any political issue, any thematic issue? What criteria would you use as a journalist to gauge that? It's a good question. I mean, I think couple of things. I think uh, there's been some recent reporting, including an article by Ben Smith in the New York Times itself, mm. that quotes, you know, some journalists she's worked with in the past. And some of them have alleged that, you know, when she would go out in the field, she would kind of have an idea of the story she wanted to tell and try to collect evidence in support of that thesis, as opposed yeah. to actually finding the truth or finding the story um, as it unfolds. I think that sort of falling into confirmation bias can be dangerous uh, to us as journalists. Um, mm. I do think it would be more helpful if you are an expert on the Middle East or on a group like ISIS to sort of know the language. She She's relied right. a lot in the past on documents in Arabic that, you know, they say were ISIS documents, like sort of bureaucratic documents. There's actually a huge controversy over the fact that she took out like 15,000 documents from Iraq uh, while mm. the Iraqi military was rooting out ISIS and uh, brought them back to the U.S. and kind of wrote articles based on these documents. Um, mm. They were criticized, one, for taking uh, documents that people said should have remained in Iraq, there were historical documents of, of significance. And two, the fact that some of these documents were not redacted. So you had kind of people's identities published uh, that oh. could have potentially put them at risk. So, you know, I would say language skills are pretty important, kind of a basic understanding of, of Islam and Middle East culture, ideally more than a basic understanding. I mean, <laughs> I sort of compare her coverage of the region to that of Anthony Shadid, who um, passed away uh, in 2012 from an asthma attack uh, while covering the war in Syria. But he was of mm. Lebanese origin, a foreign correspondent. Uh, at the time, he was with the New York Times, but he'd also worked for the Washington Post and the Boston Globe. And, you know, he had roots in the region. He learned Arabic. He was able to connect with people. I just think that makes a huge difference when covering mm. any geographic region. Um, the late Edward Said, Palestinian-American professor at Columbia University, wrote a book, really seminal book on this topic called Covering Islam, 
really amazing book for anyone that wants to kind of look at historically how the coverage of Islam in the Muslim world in the Middle East has been. But he talks about the fact that, you know, he says it's only a slight overstatement to say that Muslims and Arabs are essentially seen as either oil suppliers or potential terrorists. Mm. Very Mm. little of the detail, the human density, the passion of Arab Muslim life has entered the awareness of even those people whose profession it is to report the Arab world. So I think what we look for in kind of more nuanced coverage is what what he talks about, the detail, the human density, the passion of Arab Muslim life, as opposed to just kind of the most sensationalistic aspects of that region. And it links to how curious journalists are. I feel like in today's age of social media, where consumers have dwindling attention spans and we are getting information in bite-sized chunks and there is so much competition, journalists don't seem to be curious anymore, except for a few You do a great job of that, Leila, by the way. I was watching one on Afghanistan civilian loss yesterday, and um, it was so relatable because I grew up in Pakistan, and ethnically I belong to the same group as Afghanis, and I speak the language, and um, there was so much nuance. There was so much credibility as someone who grew up in that region. Do you at times, though, find yourself shaping your work around how people consume from the internet or do you have other things that you take into consideration when you are producing something so serious and so intense? That's a good question. I think there is a lot of pressure, as I mentioned before, on journalists to kind of just given how much content there is out there um, to Mm. make sure that your content is seen. I think the pressure multiplies when you have sort of profit pressures Uh, Luckily at Al Jazeera, we don't have any of that because it's, you know, as people know, it's funded by the government of Qatar. Of course, you know, I don't get any of my um, sort of editorial notes from anybody in the government. It's it's an independent channel. But um, I think given that we don't have that commercial pressure, we don't make decisions on what to cover based on what people want to watch or want uh, Mm. to read about. I don't think that journalists are incurious. I think, especially when you're covering, you know, groups like ISIS, I think there is a temptation to kind of lean into the most sensationalistic parts of uh, what they do and kind of um, a reluctance to zoom out and look at the full picture, as I mentioned, of the geopolitical state of the region and, and how ISIS was created and the circumstances around which, you know, it was created. So I think there is pressure for, like I mentioned, for people's work to be seen. And sometimes that probably factors into what stories are covered and what's, especially on cable news, I think what gets Mm. run time and time again and what gets short shrift. Right. So talking about the kind of stories that you cover, um, most of them are, you know, dealing with trauma and somebody's tragedy and you find people when they are most vulnerable and you interact with them. How much of that impacts you, Lela, as a person? And does it make you anxious? And if so, how do you deal with that anxiety, especially because we are also in the midst of a pandemic when we see so much individual and collective suffering and somehow the entire humanity is experiencing it together, right? So it has changed our perspectives on tragedy, on loss, on trauma. How do you deal with that? 
It's really tough. I mean, I would say 2017 was especially tough for me. I um, covered kind of the impact of the Muslim ban on uh, a specific family, a family of Syrian refugees who were stuck in Turkey. Mm. And, you know, it was a very, very sad kind of emotionally, um, you know, heartbreaking story. I had gotten messages when I was sort of looking to find families that were impacted directly by the Muslim ban. I heard mm. from uh, a man by the name of Abu Yahya, father of young child named Yahya, who was six years old, um, and another boy um, who was three years old, I believe, or two years old at the mm. time. And um, they were both very, very sick. They had this serious kind of genetic disorder. Um, the older son was in the ICU in a Turkish hospital, and they were supposed to have come to the U.S. to be resettled as refugees, but when the Muslim ban hit, they kind of missed the window between when they could travel and when um, the older son got so sick that he ended up in the in the ICU in a in a hospital mm. in Istanbul. Um, so we you know traveled to Istanbul. We interviewed him and kind of just followed their story as it unfolded as he was trying to beg the UN to help him, beg them to find some kind of solution for getting better medical treatment for his child. And on our last day there, his um, son passed away. And, oh. you know, it was really devastating, not only um, for the family to experience this horrific loss, but for us as journalists to really like be in that position mm. where we ask them for an interview, ask him to tell his story as he's in the middle of this, you know, the loss, the worst, you know, loss he's ever faced. And I just mm. think those moments are really, really challenging. You know, shortly after I started like experiencing stomach pain and like severe anxiety and you know, it's just like something that mm. I had to deal with. And then that same year, I actually also covered the story of the impact of the heroin e epidemic on children in Ohio. Um, and mm. that was also very tough. And they were sort of like back to back experiences. So after that, I really started to kind of understand the toll of this kind of work of these kinds of stories on journalists and try to prioritize just self care, um, trying to step away when you really need it. I actually did an excellent mm. fellowship um, at Columbia University that kind of focuses on trauma, um, both covering it and also its impact on journalists and mm. um, sort of understood better sort of the body's reaction to trauma, why we feel the way we do, um, and some best practices to deal with it. But I think it's not just journalists, it's all of us as consumers of news. Yeah. I, I can't tell you how many people tell me like, following the news stresses me out so much. I can't wait until this election is over. Yeah. It's all just like, <laughs> anxiety inducing, you know, being on social media as well. You know, I'm sure like, just, you know, it's been studied, but just the effect of all the notifications, how you feel when you get notifications, how you feel when you get these bombarded with constant bad news stories from the pandemic to the economic sort of, um, you know, downturn and challenges that people are facing in this country to the election, you know, to police brutality. It just feels like an avalanche sometimes. And I think it's yeah. important for people to sort of step back and disconnect when it just gets to be too much. What is your self-care routine? Because before we delve into election cycle, and I am going to ask you about elections, I wanted to know what is that you do specifically to take care of yourself? I'm not sure I'm the best person to ask because I'm not sure I do enough. <laughs> but I think, um, you know, trying to step back when, when it feels a bit too overwhelming and maybe, mm. you know, taking a break from social media, 
Um, I have two young kids, so really focusing on them and kind of seeing them as sort of an outlet away from all of it as much as possible. And I think just keeping perspective, it's really important to kind mm. of remember this is a blip in time and like the overall like history of the world. And even though everything feels so horrible, you know, we as human beings find ways to bounce back. We're resilient. Mm. You know, we're sort of born with these tools that help us survive calamity and, you know, trying, like like I said, to keep perspective and to know that, you know, in the grand scheme of things, I'm extremely privileged in so many ways and to kind of recognize yeah. that privilege as well. So, Leila, we are recording this interview almost two weeks before the election. Um, it will be released after the election. So we don't know what's going to happen, but we can at least debate about what's happening right now. How are you feeling about how the media coverage of this election cycle is? And do you think press is doing a better job than they did in 2016? I think it's a tough job. There's a lot of emphasis on sort of the horse race, the distractions that happen with every campaign. Um, I wish there's more focus on policies that actually impact mm. people's day-to-day -day lives. Yeah. Things like healthcare, like you know, the economic downturn, the pandemic and how that's impacted people's lives. The fact that the pandemic has disproportionately impacted communities of color in the U.S., hmm. what that means for these communities, both in terms of trauma and loss, but also in terms of inequity when it comes to healthcare, education, housing, these sort of systemic issues that may not be as exciting for headlines, but are extremely important. Um, you know, I think we as a program are going to do an episode on the election, kind of focusing on the main themes around it. But mm. um, yeah, I think it's it's definitely a challenging task. And I'm not an, a, a politics reporter. But yeah, if there's one thing I would say, more focus on policy and less on, you know, some of the sort of shenanigans or some of the sideshows that happen. All the work that you've done based on that, and you already mentioned you're not a politics reporter, but what do you think the American people are unaware of in these times? I think, like I said, some of the systemic issues around like healthcare inequity, um, housing, hmm. uh, education. I was listening to a lecture the other day that said schools in the United States are more segregated today than they were in 1954. I think a lot of Americans wow. would be very surprised to learn that. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, I saw this tweet by a doctor who kind of works with low-income patients. And one of his patients told him that he began rationing his medication because they were so expensive and he was getting older and he was running out of money. And he asked his doctor, like, I think he was on like diabetes medication and blood pressure and var various um, conditions. And he said, like, which one do you think, basically trying to get his doctor's help to choose which medication to eventually discontinue. And the doctor mm. was so horrified. He said, can I tweet about this? Can I write about this? And he said, mm. sure, you can, but people know, they just don't care. Yeah, I was going to say the same thing. When we talk about healthcare, when we talk about discrimination, um, when we talk about dehumanization of certain communities, I think people know they just don't care or they don't want to care. And that's what really scares me. I wish people were uninformed, but I don't think that's the case. Yeah, I mean, I think there are moments that kind of break through in the news cycle and they do make a difference. Uh, one example I can think of is when 
the family separation policy uh, by the Trump administration was sort of at its height. And um, the investigative news organization ProPublica got a hold of um, a recording inside one of the detention facilities of a young child mm. crying um, and calling for their family member. I think that really resonated with people. People were pretty shocked and horrified and there was massive outcry. And eventually uh, the Trump administration said they would discontinue that policy. So I do think there mm. are certain moments that breakthrough that resonate and oftentimes it's visual or you know it's it's mm. a video for example the video of George Floyd right why did that horrific killing move people to organize the largest protests in U.S. history what 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 peop- some sources say are the largest protests in U.S. history mm. so and I think it's those moments that kind of reassure me that people do care about injustice and do care about mistreatment of of people violation of human rights um, and I think it's important to kind of hang on to that hope. Otherwise, we despair. But, you know, I think definitely credit to those journalists who are telling those important stories as well. Lena, do you think a journalist should check his or her or their ego? Is that something that comes in the way of how you do reporting? It's a good question. I mean, circling back to the Kalamaki, uh, you know, debacle, I think hmm. there was an interesting <laughs> article in the New Republic that kind of makes the argument that name brand journalism, that kind of this idea of turning reporters into characters, making them the story contributed to this as well. And I yeah. think, you know, you can definitely make that argument in the case of Caliphate. Um, it's important to remember that we're not the story. Uh, the people whose stories we're telling are the story. We're just mm-hmm. kind of the vehicle to tell that story. I think, especially when people taste success, they can, it can you know, they can let it get to their heads and maybe be less receptive to any kind of criticism of their work. I can tell you my own experience after the mm. horrific Las Vegas mass shooting in 2017. Mukmini mm. Kalamaki was like tweeting for days and days and days that the shooter Stephen Paddock had converted to Islam, basing it on oh. ISIS chatter <laughs> and chat rooms. And I just felt oh, like wow. that was really reckless speculation that a New York Times reporter would not get away with on any other topic. Um, so I had a mm. very like pretty straightforward, what I consider to be Um, fair critique of that and she immediately blocked me Hmm. and I just think you know when your response is to block a fellow journalist making what I think is a substantive critique um, that shows that Hmm. you're not very open to that kind of criticism and I think part of putting your ego aside or checking your ego is to be open to criticism. You know this is such an interesting point about Rukmini Kalamaki and how most of terrorism narrative in America somehow gets framed around Muslims. The idea of using Muslim violence as a reference point is something that has really permeated American culture. Whenever commentators want to make a point about violence, they somehow always a way to refer back to the Arab and Muslim world. And this is a great example of that. How do we change that, Leila? Yeah, I noticed just recently with two different news stories, uh, Muslims kind of being the mm. reference point for terrorism, violence, um, you know, sort of conservatism. Uh, one example was when this mm-hmm. uh, militia group was charged and arrested with this plot to kidnap the governor of Michigan recently, um, people started yeah. calling them vanilla ISIS. 
And yeah, I saw that I think on Twitter. There's definitely mm-hmm. a, re- a reaction that said, you know, why is it that Muslims, ISIS, whomever, uh, you know, from the Middle East, scary, you know, brown terrorists always have to be the reference mm. point, considering our own country's history with white supremacist militias, with the KKK, with, you know, groups that have terrorized, especially black Americans for many, many years going back Mm. to the time of slavery. And then similarly, when Amy Coney Barrett was um, being talked about as far as her kind of religious views and how they may or may not impact Mm. her ability to serve as a Supreme Court justice, again, people were saying, kind of using Muslims as a reference point, what if she Mm. were Muslim? Like, I just don't understand why that always has to be the reference point. I think it's it can be highly offensive and kind of lazy. Something you mentioned in the beginning, everybody should definitely read Edward Said's book, Covering Islam. I started reading it and I was blown away by how relevant that book is today. And all of this dehumanization was happening even in the 80s. We think it's post 9-11. It's not. Some people think it is. That's not the case. In the end, Lela, if you were to describe America in a word or a sentence, how would you do that? Oh, that's a good good question. Complicated and home. For me, it's home. Um, hmm. Being that my grandparents were Palestinian refugees, I have no place else to go. So it's home both hmm. for me and my children. But obviously, given America's history, um, you know, the way it was founded, the way it was built on the backs of slaves, uh, the way that, you know, the indigenous people of this land were killed and treated afterwards. Um, it's complicated. Mm. I think, you know, there's a lot of ideals that we aspire to from, you know, freedom of religion, freedom of press, uh, these freedoms that we hold so sacred um, that sometimes mm. we live up to as a country and sometimes we don't. But what gives me hope are the people who always push America to be better and to be its best self and to be as inclusive as possible. That's great, Leila. Where can people find your documentary, AJ Fault Lines? They can go on YouTube and type Fault Lines Al Jazeera English and you will find all of our episodes there. Or follow AJ Fault Lines on Twitter or me, Leila Alarian, on Twitter. Thank you so much. This was wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. I hope you guys enjoyed my conversation with Lela. And since Immigrantly does not focus on sensationalism, we focus on more nuanced conversations. We need your help to grow, download and subscribe, share with a friend and let us know what you think. Until next time when we have another incredible guest. Take care.